Well, good morning. Good to see you today. What a tremendous word this morning from my friend, brother, Jeremiah. I was blessed. Um, it, it's so good and so refreshing to hear the love of the Father and to be washed with the water of the Word. And I think that's what happened this morning. And that was, that was a, a genuinely awesome moment for me. And I, I'm always impressed. I'm not shocked any longer, but I'm always impressed by the work of the Spirit, how He builds a day for us by what I heard this morning and then knowing what the Lord had put on our heart. It's just really cool to watch Him do that. I want to honor Pastor. Thank you again for having us back. Um, It's always good. And then for the first time in Mobile, Alabama, the lovely Natasha is with me. So that is, a, that is a high mark for me. I am excited today to have her. Our kids are finally, we're, they're 20 and 16. They're finally to the place where we can abandon them for a few days and not worry about, you know, too many problems. And, uh, and the 20-year-old's at university, so the 16-year-old's less prone to burn the house down. So we left her there. Things are fairly safe in North Georgia with her there. So uh, anyhow. Awesome, awesome, great opportunity, and I appreciate it so very much. Um, are you ready for the word today? All right, I, I, I want to honor the time, I want to honor your time, and I have a lot that's stirring in my spirit, so I want to just get busy today and, and try to unpack and unleash a few things that I, I feel the Father has placed on me. Um, I'm looking around the world, um, particularly in our country, watching the cry for justice. That's what we're seeing is a cry for justice. Now, I don't want to, I'm not politicizing it because I think we've politicized everything far too much. Um, we, we've politicized, uh, well, I won't even get into the list of things we've politicized. If you can think of it, we've politicized it, all right? It can go one way, it can go the other way, but it can't be in the middle. You've got to be swinging hard to one side or the other. That's wearying. That's exhausting. We were made for more than this, by the way. So when I talk about justice, I'm not talking about political justice. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not even really talking about social justice, but I see a cry for a justice that, uh, that I don't think the answer can be, well, we're going to preach the gospel and let the gospel change people's hearts, and then that will bring justice. I, I, don't, I, I think we are made for more than that. Because that can be very easy to just insulate ourselves in our churches and present good news and then go out and do what my brother said today, sort of set in one spot, happy to be saved, happy to have grace, happy to be righteous, and then not go over out into this world, into the places where justice is badly needed or injustice is being served, And we know we have the answer. His name is Jesus. But that can't just be come to church and hear a sermon on Sunday and then let that transformation change you and then ignore the fact that the world is screaming for justice. And so as I look at the Word, I I find something that is pretty obvious in the Old Testament and then shockingly less obvious in the New Testament. And that caused me to wonder why. And that is the theme of justice. Because in the Old Testament, the theme of justice is loud and clear. God speaks all the time of justice. And then you get into the New Testament, and thanks to things like the King James Version, I'm not, I'm not picking on translations or anything today, but that was basically the English-speaking version for about 400 years. 
no justice at all. In fact, the word justice does not appear in the English translation of, especially the oldest English translation of the Bible, in the New Testament. Matthew to Revelation, not a single reference to justice, which is bizarre because it's a, it's a term that is pounded in the Old Testament, literally the word and the theme, and then the New Testament, no. But you can never watch Jesus and not see justice. So as you watch Jesus work, you see a just man on the earth, a justified man on the earth, but a man full of justice on the earth. And you see him with the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor and the downtrodden. And you don't see him adding to their burden. You see him lifting their burden. That's justice. So while the word isn't there in our English translation, the spirit of it, the theme of it, is alive and well. I want to investigate that reality today for a moment. I want to investigate that reality that we don't see justice, but we can't avoid justice in the New Testament, and what that might mean for us as students of the Bible. To start with, let's go Old Testament. I want to show you a text from Psalms chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89 is written by a man named Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite. This is a pretty smart guy. You remember in the Old Testament when it tells you that Solomon is wiser than all of the men on the earth? That's one of those little obscure moments from the book of Kings. It then lists for you the wisest people on the earth. The first guy that Solomon is wiser than is Ethan the Ezraite, the guy that writes Psalms chapter 89. So this guy is, in the ancient world, the smartest man on the planet until Solomon comes along. And so when he writes, he would have written with a lot of authority. People would have paid attention to what Ethan had to say. Listen to a few verses from Psalms chapter 89. Let's start in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I want you to keep that in, your, in the forefront of your mind right out of the gate. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That, that the your is God. Ethan talking about the fact that God's foundation is righteousness and God's foundation is justice. And then look at the connecting two adjectives from 14. Mercy and truth go before your face. So when you talk about righteousness and you talk about justice, immediately the author throws in mercy and truth. And that connection between righteousness and mercy or justice and mercy is going to be closely linked, both Old Testament and New. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, they walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance, and in your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. Now, what's interesting in the Old Testament, and I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence today, I, I, I just want to make sure we all are on the same page. The Old Testament's Hebrew, the New Testament's Greek, but we read them in English, and therefore we're going to miss a lot of the color behind the words. We're going to miss a lot of the meanings. And it's, we, we, we're fortunate to live in the era we live in where you don't have to be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar to be able to dig at least the first couple layers off and find out what the author might have been trying to say. And so while it's not about, to me, it's not about pronunciation, it's not about spelling, it's not about emphasis marks and, and jots and tittles on top of Hebrew literature, it's just getting into the, uh, as close as you can, getting into the heartbeat of what the author was trying to say. And so Sedeka is the Hebrew word that's translated righteousness in the Old Testament. And, and righteousness, of course, is, is God's quality. It's who he is. And when we talk about righteousness on the earth, we think in terms of us 
having his quality inside of us. That's a personalization of righteousness. The interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, tzedakah is translated righteousness, but it is also translated justice. The Hebrew word for righteousness is the exact same word as the Hebrew word for justice. The first verse that we read said, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Technically, in the Hebrew, it's justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. You give forth justice in your judgments, and that's how you rule. So whatever God does to judge, God does from a place of justice. When you think of it in the Hebrew term, tzedakah, righteousness, justice, just realize that it was literally up to the translator. So when the translator comes along the word tzedakah, he can write into English the word righteousness if the translator felt that what was being portrayed was the quality of God's holiness. But if the translator felt like what was being portrayed was the quality of God's judgment or justice, they would drop the word justice. So you'll read through the Old Testament and you'll see righteousness in some places, and you'll see justice in other places. Interestingly enough, the Greek word dikasune is the Greek word for righteousness. Dikasune, the quality of who God is. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. When we say that, what we're saying is we are the dikasune of God in Christ. We are the very quality of God in Jesus Christ. Would you like to know what the Greek word for justice is? Dikasune. It's the exact same word. Now, you would know it by reading the English translation of the Bible. I think the very newest English translation of the Bibles might use it nine times, eight times in the English. The oldest English translation of the Bible never use it at all. Now, that gets someone who likes to assume he's somewhat of a Bible student to at least really start wrestling with big ideas which is why is it that in the Old Testament I hear about righteousness and I hear about judgment? When I get to the New Testament, I only hear about righteousness. Why is it that I didn't hear anything about justice? Why does the New Testament focus me more on the idea of righteousness over the idea of justice? And I'm wrestling it out. And here's one of the things that has become more obvious to me the more that I've traveled, the more that I've ministered grace, the more that I've ministered finished work. It's this thought. For the most part in the church, righteousness is a personal quality. So when we hear about righteousness, we think in internal terms. We think about what it means to me. Very little do we think about what it means to you. Now, I don't mean we think it's only ours. We're smarter than that. We know that righteousness is mine and his and hers and his and hers, and that everybody is righteous through Christ, not through their works, not through their stuff, not through their performance. We've nailed that in the message of grace. We've nailed down personal righteousness, personal identity, personal inheritance. But we've went so personal that sometimes we struggle with the idea of what that means on a corporate basis or what that means outward. And I think the reason why we struggle with it is because our New Testament really only talks about righteousness. It doesn't talk about justice. And I think that's caused us to have to rearrange the way sometimes even that we interpret some of the things that we're seeing from the text. Now, the reason I used the Psalm 89 is because I wanted to show you that it is permissible by rule 
to take the multiple definitions of a word and figure out which one the author is trying to say based upon the context. So do that again in Psalms 89. Because in that Old Testament passage, Sadek, righteousness, is also justice. So look again at verse 16. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your Sadek they are exalted. Your text says, in your righteousness they are exalted. But it could just as well have said, and some translations might, in your justice they are exalted. What would that mean? I think one of the things we have to do is we have to take away the Western world idea of justice and insert the biblical idea of justice. Because the Western world idea of justice is retribution, punishment, and payback. You messed up, you deserve to pay a price. What we call that? That's justice. If someone kills someone, we see it on the news, it's very likely that an attorney will come on being interviewed and say, the people demand justice. What do we mean by that? The people demand, now what it means in a broad sense is, the people demand that the right thing be done. But that's not what he meant when he said it. What he meant when he said it was, the people demand that this guy fry for killing that guy. Because that's our definition of justice. And how many of you realize that if you lock yourself in to a strict rendering of the Old Testament, you might end up walking away with an idea that God's kind of justice is also retributive justice, punitive justice, equality justice, payback justice, because you might end up with, you have heard it said, remember who said that? Jesus. You have heard it said, and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What's that? That's, that's our justice. But that's also Old Testament justice. That is someone wronged you, you better wrong them because if you don't wrong them, they're never going to learn. A.K.A. American justice. You hit me, I hit you. Why did I hit you back? Because I'm not naive. If I don't hit you back, you'll hit me again. Right? That's kind of, that's Western world justice. It's not, I will even say this, it's not heart of God justice. Even though the old covenant says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says, but I say to you. Now hear that. You have heard it said. Let me ask you a question. Where had they heard it said? Old Testament, in the law. It was literally written in Torah. You have heard it said. He could have said, thus saith the Lord, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's in there. But listen, and this is what would have caused us trouble watching Jesus move through the world in the natural body. Jesus says, but I say to you. That would have caused me problems. I would have thought, how dare you say, but I say to you. Thus saith the Lord is the way it is. But what Jesus was doing was showing you, you've always misunderstood dad's justice. So I say to you that if a man smites you on the cheek, and this is, no fun, this is what I call no fun Christianity 101. This right here. Let me introduce you in a Saturday morning conference to No Fun Christianity. It's called Don't Resist an Evil Person, Pray for Your Persecutor, Love Your Enemy, Carry the Load Two Miles When You're Asked to Carry It One, and When He Smites You, Give for Him Also the Other Cheek. And you go, no one ever shouts to that. I've never had anyone amen that with excitement. They amen it reluctantly. <sighs> amen. I know it was part of what we signed up for, but can we hear about heaven now? <laughs> 
Can we hear about the Holy Ghost? Can we hear about the gifts? I don't want to hear about this other stuff. But that's very Jesus, right? And Jesus doesn't just talk it. Jesus walks it. Peter, put your sword up. And that's hard. It's beyond hard. It's impossible without that heart of love. And that's what the new covenant's bringing us to, is that understanding of who we are, what we've received, so that we can show forth God's true heart of justice. Because God's true heart of justice is not retributive, it's not punitive, it's not pay you back for what you did. God's idea of justice is always, as we saw in the Psalm 89, we'll see in the New Testament, always linked to mercy. God knows no sedek, no justice without mercy and truth. In other words, for God, justice is not the Western world definition of payback. Justice is bringing people to the level of what they are worth in the eyes of God. It's taking, this is why Jesus spends so much time with the marginalized, the poor, the Gentile, the prostitute, the publican, the outsider, not because he loves sinners more than saints, and not because he prefers bad people to good. Jesus eats with Pharisees also. Why? Because Jesus doesn't have a bad place in his heart for Pharisees. So it's not as if he goes, you know, I just like, I like publicans better than Pharisees. No, it's the requirement of the sedek of God. Jesus says to John the Baptist, you must baptize me. John goes, I can't baptize you. Jesus says, you have to. Why? Because this is to fulfill all dikosune. What's that mean? This is to fulfill all righteousness, but I never got that. I, I thought, and that's actually caused us some problems. It's, caused, it's created some versions of, of New Covenant teaching in which Jesus pays for righteousness on a personal level by getting baptized in Jordan, but it's just because the translators didn't give me the other definition of the word, which is justice. What Jesus says to John the Baptist, what he could say to John the Baptist is, yes, you must baptize me because this is the beginning of how we fulfill justice on the earth where people who don't deserve, bless people who do, and vice versa, because this is the kingdom turned around. So don't, don't tell me you can't baptize me. You're thinking in the wrong terms of justice. In the wrong term of justice, I got to baptize you, because we both know I can outlive you. I can outperform you. But God kind of justice is flip side, where a John the Baptist gets to baptize a Jesus. Now that's, that's path breaking. So when Jesus goes to fulfill all righteousness, he then doesn't just talk it, he walks it. Everything you watch him do in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's fulfilling justice. So who should I eat with? The one no one will eat with. That would be justice. Who should I converse with? The one no one will, yet, will now converse with. That would be justice. See, justice is not I'll punch you because you punched me. That's secular. That's the world. That's the kingdom of darkness. We like it. I like it. I, I'm, I'm, well, I might as well just be honest with you. This is my home away from home, so I can say that. I, I like the, the you punch me, I punch you kind of justice. Seems fair. Like you had it coming. You know? I mean, you shouldn't have thrown the first punch. That's just the way it goes. I like it. I love it, in fact. I feed on it. But that's what Paul called my flesh. 
Paul did say, I have a little war going on. Now, we, we, I think, theologically perverted that and made that a sin nature, where the only reason people sin is because they have a sin nature. I don't want to bust your bubble, but you never needed a sin nature to sin in the Garden of Eden. You just, God put a tree there, said, don't eat it, boom, man ate it. No, it wasn't from the inside, it was from the outside. In fact, even Adam's descendants didn't sin because sin was in them. God comes to Cain and goes, what's wrong? Sin lies at your door. Where's sin? Outside at your door. It wants in. You going to let it in or not? Cain lets it in. There's your first indicator in theology that God wasn't concerned about that which is inside, or that, that, that sin was an internal problem. He had to take care of you internally, but sin is an external issue. When new creation reality meets it, we can overcome because we have a tree of life to eat from. So it's not a matter of you're fighting every day. I got to fight this because that, that was my charismatic Pentecostal Christianity for about 15 years was fight the old Paul every day. Punch the old Paul. How do you do it? Quote verses, sing songs, name of Jesus, fast, speak in tongues, beat the old Paul up. I didn't realize that Jesus had already died for the old Paul, and the old Paul was supposed to be dead in Jesus, and that what I was dealing with was that old flesh part of me that wanted to be Rambo. You hit me, I hit you. That's my old flesh that's very attached to the kingdom of darkness. He still finds comfort in it. And so we all deal with that. That doesn't mean you need to get resaved. No, it doesn't need you need you need to come up here for a new revelation or a fresh outpouring. You might need to wake up to the fact that you're righteous and stop thinking as if you're unrighteous, but you also might need to realize that you have to navigate a world that's pressing against the man that you are in the culture that you live in, in the nation that you live in, in the time that you live in, versus the kingdom. No one can see the kingdom of God that's coming alive in who you are, and your template, your example is Jesus, who has around him all of these opportunities to show forth that natural side. And he's put in these amazing and precarious situations. Bow down before you, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Throw yourself off of here. The angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. These fantastic wilderness moments, these fantastic daily moments, these fantastic Garden of Gethsemane moments where Jesus is faced with the easy opportunity to respond in natural justice. I can call down angels from heaven and pull me off this cross. What do you think the angels, why does he need so many of them? Because they're not just pulling him off the cross. They're coming down to destroy his killers. Jesus refrains. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven justice is to bring equality to people at the foot of the cross, not to bring people down that are at the foot of the cross. And so what the kingdom of heaven justice is going to do is going to be elevate and lift up. Now, I don't want to speak for, I don't want to speak from silence and I don't want to defend or accuse dead people. When the translators took us from Greek to English, I cannot tell you why they didn't give us justice one time. Dikosune is there. It's right in front of them. In fact, in secular writing, when they talk about the justice of Rome, they use the Greek word dikosune. Now, no one would ever say the righteousness of Rome, but they would talk about the justice of Rome. So you get into the New Testament, they didn't give us justice, but they can't, you can't avoid it. It's there. And I want to present for you today sort of a, uh, um, a theory, maybe more than that, just a presentation that I think you should wrestle with. Not one I think you can solve on a Saturday, because I don't think we can solve any of this. I think we're walking by faith, and we're wrestling out truths, and some of them we'll let go of, and some of them we'll hold on to, and that's just the way it goes. And so I want to lay something out for you to think about, for you to work over, and that is the idea that for several hundred years, 
due to the fact that the New Testament takes God's definition of righteousness and justice, which, by the way, in God's economy are exactly the same thing, righteousness and justice. But the translators only talk to us about righteousness, which I think totally internalized who God is. And it made it okay for Christians to receive righteousness, which is awesome. It made it okay for us to proclaim that he took our sins so we could take our righteousness and we have his quality, which is great. But because we didn't get the fullness of what the word is trying to say, we don't think in terms of the justice of heaven when we think about righteousness. We've pushed that off to a Western world idea of judgment of people getting what they deserve rather than a daily justice that is the righteousness of God on the earth. In fact, through that lens, take a uh, a dikasune lens and work your way through the New Testament and just drop the word justice in where the translation said the word righteous. By the way, you can do it conversely because the word would be used in a, di- a diametrically opposite construction for the word wicked or unrighteous or the word unjust, unjust, or injustice. Okay? So you can take that word and drop it in wherever you say you see the word unrighteousness. You could drop in the word injustice. So a justice is not being performed here. Think about something very simple like the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But the author is actually saying to you that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's saying that. But he's also saying to you the kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, our job is not to blindly accept that they are all righteousness or to blindly accept that they are all justice, but to rightly divide the truth between the moment where the text demands you know who you are and when the text demands you know what you should do. Because that's the difference. That's the difference in I am the righteousness of God in Christ and the difference in I express the justice of God in Christ by the way that I live. Because justice isn't something you can keep to yourself and still call it justice. Righteousness is something you can keep to yourself and still call it righteous. If you don't ever share it with anybody, you'll always be righteous. But you can't not share justice and dare call it justice. Because it's not justice for anyone if it's locked away inside where it can do no good. That's why I say to you, it is not enough for the Church of America to say, hey, I'll tell you what the answer is to that movement and that poster and that protest and that placard and that statement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just need to come in here and get saved. And there's not a moment when Jesus encounters a marginalized person in the New Testament and he looks at his disciples and goes, you know what's wrong with pimps, prostitutes, and sinners? They need to get saved. Not one moment. Because for Jesus, justice was not talking about what people needed to do theologically. Justice was pulling people to the level that God viewed them. It was restoring value where there had been no value. Let me take you to what is probably the greatest sermon ever penned. I mean, if Jesus says it, he's probably at least the leader in the clubhouse. Right? The Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Now, what I want to do is I want to start to apply that thought, that dikosune thought, because you know this is righteousness, but this is also justice. And again, I can't speak for why it wasn't, but the fact that it wasn't has caused us to define righteousness almost entirely on personal terms. And before I read one verse, let me say this. Because we are defining righteousness almost entirely on personal terms, 
we sometimes struggle with the pre-Calvary sermons of Jesus. Now hear me out on this. Jesus will say things prior to the cross, and what we've learned to do in circles of grace is to say, well, Jesus said that before the cross, therefore he was saying it to people under the old covenant, therefore you don't really have to pay attention to it. Now I've actually heard that said, I've said variants of that, and now let me double speak for you to you for a second. Because if you're going to mine out truth, sometimes you're going to have to, you're going to have to look at both sides of the coin. The reality is, is that you very much have to keep that in mind when you listen to Jesus talk. You do have to keep in mind that he's speaking to a people under the old covenant. He's not yet speaking to a people under the new covenant. But let me help you out here, because this has really helped me. If you really want to make it easier to read the pre-Calvary sermons of Jesus, when you see Dikosune, stop saying righteousness and start saying justice. And imagine that Jesus is in a world pressed by an, an empire. Imagine that Jesus is living in a world where people are scattered and do not have their own land. Imagine that Jesus is living in a world where the poor and the oppressed have no chance at upward mobility, ever. Everything I just described to you is exactly the world Jesus came into. So when Jesus opens his mouth, I don't think he's talking to the world at large about how to view themselves in the eyes of God only. I think he's talking to God's people about how they ought to be treating their neighbor and how they ought to be loving in a world that's unlovable and how they ought to respond to an empire that is asking more and more and more of them. I don't think Jesus' message is entirely internal. I think Jesus' message is meant to be external. There's an internal element, of course. That's salvation. That's the personality of salvation. But it's not a justice that ends at the church walls. It's one that rolls over and expands. And therefore, if you take something like the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus uses dikosune seven times inside of two chapters. Seven times. And I don't know that in any of those moments is he talking about righteousness the way I've learned righteousness. Maybe he is. But the text pops when he starts talking to me about justice. And I don't have to explain stuff anymore. I don't even have to read them and go, now remember, that's before the cross. After the cross, it's going to be something else. I don't have to because justice fits the context. It fits the setting. It fits the place. And it makes sense of my moments of injustice where I struggle with it, where I wish justice was done on my behalf, or where I know justice needs to be done by me. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and what's the most famous intro Let's read the words in black first to get into the meat of the sermon. Seeing the multitudes, verse 1, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, now here is what we call the Beatitudes, right? Bless, the blessed are. Now I want you to think about this before you read one of them. The word blessed is the Greek word makarios. Makarios can literally mean blessed, mean happy. Here's one that I'd like for you to just think about while we read. The word makarios means the fortunate one. So if I were to say to you, well, you sure are fortunate, you would not assume that was anything negative. You would assume that was something positive, right? And if I were saying it to you in the Greek, I would say you are makarios. You are fortunate. Now, if you put the word fortunate in there, none of these make any sense. And the reason they don't make any sense is because we're reading them through the natural lens instead of the supernatural lens. Now, remember what Jesus comes to do. Jesus is not just talking about an internal private righteousness that makes you an inheritor. Jesus is talking about an external justice that touches the world. Why? Because he's preaching to Israel. And Israel had a job to do, a job they had abandoned. We're going to see that in a moment, a job they had failed to do. 
But Jesus comes calling them back, saying, you want to know what the problem is? You want to know why we're under this oppressor? You want to know why we're struggling beneath this rule? It's because we failed to, to dikosune. Not we failed to be righteous. Righteousness is a faith act. But because we failed to be just, because we failed to pull people up to the place where they were supposed to be, we failed to take care of them. What James 1 says, pure religion and undefiled is to care for the fatherless and the widow. Why does he say that? Because that's the purity of the heartbeat of God would be to care for people that can't care for themselves. So fortunate are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate, blessed, happy, makarios are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dikosune. And right here, I want you to take what dikosune means in a broader sense because Jesus is speaking to a broad audience and therefore would use the definition that was the broadest definition. And also the definition that matters if you're poor in spirit and you're crying and you're meek and someone has their boot on your neck. The message you don't want to hear is personal righteousness. The message you want to hear is corporate justice. So, Fortunate are those of you who have a boot on your neck because justice, dikosune, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Why? Because they're going to get their fill. The kingdom is chalked full of the justice of heaven, of God bringing an equality to every person's value regardless of your skin, regardless of your parentage, regardless of your doctrine, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've done or what's been done to you, to bring value back. The justice of the kingdom is to bring value back to valueless people, to where everyone else has told you you're not worth it. The justice, the dikosune of God is not just to make you feel as if you are his inherited, his son or daughter. That's part of it. That's an internal knowledge. But it's to bring an equality, not just theoretically, but actually an equality to the people of the earth through the message of who he is. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dikasune, for righteousness, for justice. They shall be filled. Look at this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Remember what we did in Psalms 89? And I told you, watch this close connection. Anytime you see righteousness and justice, you're going to see his close bedfellow called mercy. Look what Jesus does in the Beatitudes. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness... You're going to be filled. What's the very next thing out of his mouth? Blessed or merciful, because they'll obtain mercy. Because whenever Jesus speaks of justice, he cannot help but speak of mercy. Because for God, justice is not paying you back. For God, justice is putting you where you belong. It's bringing you into the house of mercy. It's bringing you into the presence and the heart of who he is. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Let's put our Macarios in there again, because I just like it. Fortunate. Fortunate are the pure in heart. They get to see God. Fortunate are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Fortunate are those of you who are persecuted for diakunos' sake. What if this is justice? What if, again, he hasn't switched over to how people live, but he switched over to the world around them, and he says, blessed are the ones of you who are persecuted for justice's sake where the, the system of this world believes they're putting justice on you. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the overlooked. 
the forgotten, the marginalized, the outsiders. You know why Jesus has to call attention to them? Because no one else is. And when Jesus shows up, it's necessary to do that. One of the beautiful things of Jesus is his ability to elevate that which has not been elevated through the eyes of the natural and to downgrade that which has been down upgraded through the eyes of the natural. It's why he gives that very puzzling, in the kingdom, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He doesn't mean in the kingdom, if you finish in dead last place, you're the winner, and if you finish in first, no, that's thinking secular. What Jesus is saying, I believe what Jesus is saying is, is this kingdom does everything opposite. I elevate that which hasn't been able to be elevated, which has been squashed down. The world made it last. I make it first. And that which the world celebrates as first, that doesn't mean very much to me. Because it was all effort and self. And, and in, in my kingdom, that gets elevated that needs elevated. And it's beautiful with how Jesus, like for instance, just, just for instance, only one time in any of his parables does Jesus ever give someone a proper name. Because to give someone a proper name, to say your name is a familiarity. If I say, hey, you all the time, if about the sixth or eighth time, you're going to realize this guy didn't know my name, right? Like if every time I see you, go, hey, what's up? Hey, buddy. Hey, champ. Hey, pal. Hey, bro. But if it's, hey, Jeremiah, well, you know I at least took the time to connect the name with the face, you know, you could still be a liar, but at least you're a noble liar. You know, like, there's, there's a, I know this guy's name. So to connect a name is to give value. I value you enough to learn your name is really what that means. And Jesus, I'm a, I'm a little bit in the weeds here. I just want to get this out. Jesus only names one guy in one parable, and it's the rich man and the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man fares sumptuously every day. He gets everything he needs. The system of the world, he's top to the charts. And then he dies. And then the guy who was a poor and a beggar and begged bread outside of his gate and never had anything, he gets elevated into Abraham's bosom. You know what the point of the story is? We've made that way too much about some people going to heaven, some people going to hell when they die. Jesus was talking to a people who needed to hear that nameless beggars have a name in the kingdom and named people in the world have no name in the kingdom because the rich man doesn't even get a name, but Lazarus gets one. And Jesus is always elevating that which is forgotten and marginalized and oppressed. Why? Because that's the dikosune Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus came to bring justice to the Lazaruses, to bring them back to that place. To move ahead. Take What we could do is you could really just slow work your way through the Sermon on the Mount, watch all these powerful images, and these power, and they're, they're worth so much study, and you can get lost in them. They're, they're pretty sensational, but I just want to hit some highlights for you, because I want you to start to think through that filter of dikosune. What if Jesus is speaking of something that isn't just my righteousness, but is the justice system of heaven? He tells them he didn't come to, to, to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it, and he says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, for if I, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what we've done is we've struggled with, in legalistic circles, we really struggled with that because we went, well, the, the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people in the world. So what Jesus is saying is you're going to have to live even better than they lived under the Old Testament. And no one ever tells you, by the way, that nobody lived very good under the Old Testament. You ever notice that when you're in a legalistic circle and they go, well, God's demanding even more of you than he demanded of Israel, and they had to live holy lives. And I think, none of them ever lived holy lives because legalism never makes you live a holy life. 
it never helps. It, it hurts. It harms. And so, so we would take scriptures like that sort of through a legalistic lens, and we would say, well, you're going to have to do better than the Pharisees. Well, then we had a revelation of grace, and we would say, well, Jesus is saying to people, unless you have a righteousness that's of higher quality than that of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees' righteousness is performance, so you need a righteousness that's a righteousness by faith, uh, you're not going to enter the kingdom. The problem is he didn't turn around and explain that to them. So by saying to a crowd, now unless you guys are more righteous than they are, you're not going to make it. Now none of you are going to get this until after Pentecost and the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans and then the book of Galatians and then maybe 1 Corinthians 15 when you wake up to your righteousness and you sin no more. You're not going to get this until that, but for today, just want to let you know, unless you can live better than these guys, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. What if he said this? Unless your justice exceeds the kind of injustice that these guys practice, you're never really going to know what the kingdom is like. Because what was their justice? Retributive. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, Moses says we should kill her. What do you say? What are they asking for? They want justice. They really want to corner Jesus because they realize that the message he's been preaching of justice is different than the message Moses has been preaching of justice, and it's ticked them off. But they haven't been able to corner him on it. It bugs them. It doesn't sound hard enough. It doesn't sound punch in the nose enough. What we're going to do is set him up. We're going to find a situation where he has to pick Moses or he's going to look bad. So they bring in for him the woman caught in the act of adultery, and I love it. Jesus doesn't answer. He just doodles in the sand before he answers, which I think means sometimes you need to stop and listen for the heart of the Father because what you know printed in the book isn't the heart of the Father. You need to listen for the heart of the Father because what was printed in the Torah said stone her to death. But Jesus knew better. He knew it wasn't dad's will to stone her to death. But how do you get around stone her to death? You doodle in the sand and listen to the Holy Spirit. You might say, you think even Jesus had to doodle in the sand and listen to the Holy Spirit? I guarantee you Jesus had to doodle in the sand and listen to the Spirit because his whole ministry was built on Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. I don't do stuff until I hear dad do them, mom. When dad says do them, I do them. So every now and then you're going to get cornered. Listen, you don't have to answer really fast in life. You're in a a high-pressured situation in the world where everybody thinks they have to have an opinion right now about everything. Social media did that to us. Hey, what do you think about this? I don't know. I've never thought about it. You mean you haven't thought about it? You're not a responsible citizen. You should think about it. You should have an answer. And you go, gosh, I... I, I just really need time to breathe. Um, this is the first time I've ever seen this. I don't know what I think about it. And I have been thinking about it now, and I still don't know what I think about it. So I'm just going to keep doodling. What do you think about that? But Jesus provides the kind of justice that the kingdom demands. He, without sin among you, you go ahead and kill her. In other words, if you're sure that you're better than her, you can kill her. And no one could do it because heaven's justice shines brighter and better than the justice of darkness. Because the justice of darkness is easy. You do it to me, I do it to you. I don't even have to think about it. I can be a robot and do it back to you. I can live off my animal instincts and do it back to you. But the kingdom says you've got to stand up and be a man or a woman of God and figure out how you're going to respond to people.
And that takes, that takes far more courage than it ever does to go, okay, you get what's coming to you. You did it to me, I'm going to do it right back to you. That's a snap reaction. Here's the way I like to say it. In the world, we react. We react based on our culture. We react based on our raising. We react based upon our peer group. We react based upon our gang. We react based upon our tribe. We react based upon our education. We react. And then we accept it. We go, what, you don't like me? Only God can judge me. Don't tell me how I should live my life. We react. In the kingdom, we respond. Gently, slowly, softly, doodly. Might take a while. I don't owe you an answer right now. I'm a kingdom member. If you wanted an answer right now, go ask an animal. Because an animal will give you an instinctual response. But you asked one of the sons of God, and the sons of God take time to get their hands dirty. It ain't easy. Picosune's justice. It's heaven's justice. It shines in a new manner. It shines in a brighter manner. Israel had failed. Let me show you how they had failed, and we'll wind this, wind this down. They had failed. Zechariah chapter 7. I just want to show you an Old Testament passage to show you the failure that had led to Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom. Zechariah chapter 7, listen to 8, 9, 10. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah and said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. There's, a, there's the opposite of false justice. Execute true justice. How? Show mercy and compassion. Did you catch that? Justice and mercy? Connected? Almost always connected. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless or the alien or the poor, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Now, if we struggle with that, or we think, well, maybe that doesn't matter to me, then maybe our response is verse 11. But they refused to heed, and they shrugged their shoulders, and they stopped their ears so they couldn't see. In other words, they went, eh, eh, that's their problem. I mean, that's, you know what, that's, that's a the, that's a him problem. That's not a me problem. That's their culture. That's their problem. That's their idea. That's their issue. You know, we, we're just going to come in here. We're going to know that we're righteous. We're going to roll around in our inheritance like a pig in slop. And we're going to go to heaven someday. And hopefully, they'll come in here and get what we have. And God said to Israel, the failure is that you saw it. You didn't put Dikasune on them. You kept Dikasune to yourself. You kept that righteousness in here instead of letting that justice go be for the world. We have the prime. I love what Jeremiah said today. We're in the, and I agree 100%. We are in the greatest moment the church has ever seen. What an amazing opportunity. And you know what the great opportunity is? The great opportunity for you to stand outside the culture and love people in spite of the fact that you think they are dead wrong. You think they are dead wrong and you embrace their right to be dead wrong. And you stand with people that you can't stand because you are willing to lay down your own reputation for the upbuilding of an oppressed and a marginalized and an outcast. And we say we want to be like Jesus Jesus didn't care who he was. He didn't care what people thought. 
And yet almost everything we do now in response, we measure against what people are going to think about us politically or socially or personally or in public or in our nature. And so sometimes we'll even resist true justice because we don't want to be put in the wrong political category or the wrong ideological category. And yet Jesus walked through life living in the wrong category. Willing to sit at the table with those that you shouldn't sit at the table with if you want to be a good rabbi with a good reputation and a big ministry. You don't sit with them. And yet, Jesus said, they call me a glutton and a wine-bibber. I just keep right on eating and drinking. That's not rebellion. We're not talking about Jesus goes, forget you, a spiritual flip-off. It's Jesus saying, the people that need me are there. I have to go where I'm needed. I've done this to fulfill all righteousness. I don't know what else to do. I, I, have, to, I have to portray the justice of my dad. It's part of who I am. Now go back to Matthew 5. Let's take this Sermon on the Mount one little step farther. Matthew chapter 5. No, Matthew chapter 6. Sorry for those of you digitally just now had to back screen twice or whatever. Matthew chapter 6. Now, I want you to just, let's peruse together for a second, okay? Just peruse 25 to 32. And by peruse, I mean we're not hitting word for word. You know the spirit of it. Listen to what you're not, listen to this. Don't worry. Life's more than what you put on. Look at the birds. Dad feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than birds? Why are you worried about how tall you are? Why are you worried about your clothes? Consider the lilies. They don't toil. They don't spin. But Solomon wasn't arrayed in any more glory than any of these. If God clothes them, don't you think he's going to clothe you? So don't worry about what you're going to eat. And don't worry about what you're going to drink. This is the way the world talks, he said. These are the things the Gentiles seek. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and he's dikosune, and all these shall be added to you. It's weird that Jesus is talking about social value, social value, social value, social value, social value. Seek internal righteousness and you'll get social value. No. Jesus is saying, you feel devalued, you're worth more than the sparrow. You feel devalued, you're worth more than the lilies of the field. Seek the justice of heaven and you'll realize this. That'll, that knowledge will be added to you because you'll realize that in dad's economy, Everybody's valuable. You're so valuable, he hasn't forgotten about you. Now, guys, that's what we need to be telling the world. Now, all of that is Sermon on the Mount stuff. You can play this little experiment throughout the New Testament. I'm not saying that in every situation the best way to say it would be justice outward. Sometimes the best way to say it definitely seems to be righteousness inward because the, the context demands it. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. It hath been committed unto us, the ministry of reconciliation, where, whereby we tell the world that God has not counted their sins against them. So be ye reconciled to God, for God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might be made the dikosune of God in Christ. It sounds to me that we've been dealing with new creations and not being what we used to and being reconciled to God and that's internal and it makes sense, very much makes sense to say he was, he made, was made sin, I get to be made righteousness. It's out of context there to go and God made him to be sin so that we could be made the justice of God in Christ. It's out of context. Maybe it works, but it doesn't work as well. Context is king. Romans chapter one and I'll close. 
I want to share one with you that I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with. I've thought I had the answer and then figured out, well, I don't know if I have it or not. I've preached it. I've taught it. I still don't claim to have an answer, but I got another thing to throw into the soup right now, all right? Got another thing to throw into the stirring and the wrestling for you. You probably know where I'm going because you know that we're taking the righteousness dikosune and we're inserting the other understanding of it as justice. Look at one of the most famous passages in Paul's writings, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the dikosune of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, is written, the just live by faith. What if Paul is talking to the oppressed church at Rome beneath the power of the Roman Empire, beneath the shadow of Caesar, who feels the boot of empire on their neck every day? A slave environment where most of the converts of the Roman church are probably enslaved members of Roman households. Paul's first hint was how he opened the book. Paul, a slave. Sort of like giving a message to all you slaves. Listen up, I know how you feel. I'm going to have a conversation with you about what I think the gospel looks like. Maybe Paul says, for therein, in the gospel, is the justice of God revealed from faith to faith. Those of us in that justice live by that faith. And let me tell you why I think that might be the case. Because it makes the most sense for what happens in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Remember what I told you before. Anywhere that it's conversely negative in the Greek would be the place to use the conversely negative of justice. So let's try that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice, people who suppress truth through their injustice. We have to stop thinking about the wrath of God as smoke coming out of his ears and fire coming out of his nostrils and God's about to smash somebody. Think of it more in terms of the way your child was thinking of you when they said, man, that really made dad mad. Right? Your child said that about you. I said that about my dad. My dad was never truly angry at me a moment in his life, not through the lens of the way I used to think the father was angry at us. But I knew that my dad got mad at me from time to time, that was how I defined it. Now, if I had been writing my own book of Romans, I would have said some, or my own book about my dad, I would have said, now sometimes the wrath of my father is pretty severe and he gets on me. And you might read that later and think, boy, we have to deal with a wrathful God. I don't believe that's the case at all. I think we need to understand that the wrath of God is a focused, is a, is a definition focused around injustice. See that? Where's the wrath of God revealed? Against injustice. You know why we've had to dance with that verse? Because for us, righteousness is personal. So what's unrighteousness? Personal. So if God's wrath is against unrighteousness, what's he mad at? Sin. So who's he mad at? Sinners. So when you sin, God gets mad, and then you're in trouble. And you go, wait, what's the cross all about? But what if dikosune here is not your personal righteousness? What if it's justice and injustice? That if you want to see God stand up and defend people, be unjust to them. Injustice and the lack of new covenant justice may be the thing the church has to wrestle with in the next generation 
that we've pushed off for far too long. And I think we're in the greatest moment in the history of the church because we get a chance now to show justice that looks like Jesus. The meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. That's our beatitude. One of the oldest Greek definitions of meek is this, the ability to draw a sword, but you keep it sheathed. When Jesus says the meek inherit the earth, he's not talking about the mealy-mouthed. He's talking about the man that has the power to draw, but doesn't draw. And that takes the justice of heaven, not the justice of the earth. Father, thank you for an opportunity to wrestle together with your kids. We've gotten to look into your scriptures and we've got to ask tough questions. And I don't know if we've come away with one answer. But my, my personal heart has been ignited in seeking that truth through you. If nothing else, Father, when we walk out today, may we look at the performance and the life of Jesus through a new lens, through a new way to practice this out on the earth. That we are not made righteous by what we do, but because we have been made righteous, we do. And God, if we can walk in that reality and that truth, then I believe we have a chance to show the world justice the way Jesus proclaims justice. Help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Pastor Justin.